This is Norwich calling. Welcome to the Gallybegger podcast. I hope you're well. Here in Norwich, the sun is shining. There's a dove cooing just outside my window. Or maybe it's a pigeon. Anyway, this week on the podcast, as promised, I'm going to talk about Pliny. It's a great story featuring exploding volcanoes, extreme horror and extraordinary bravery. Also, mortality, tragedy and crisis. Pliny may have been writing about events in 79 AD, but his voice comes through loud and clear today. But before we get to that, a short treat. Alex Phoebe is currently making an audio recording of his forthcoming novel, Mordew. This is partly to give Alex and me something to do, but it's also a way of getting Mordew to you. Um, its publication date is in August. We're still hoping to hit that, but of course everything's in doubt at the moment. And it's such a amazing book that we really want to to get it out there and for people to start enjoying it and this felt like a way that we could do that i'm going to preview a chapter on the next podcast and then we're going to make installments available to gallybegger press subscribers our buddies and to people who've pre-ordered the book through our website and we'll also be putting them up on patreon where um you'll be able to decide on the amount you want to pay for each new bundle of audio But that's getting ahead of things. Before we get into all that, as a kind of pre-preview, Alex has recorded a list of things that you may encounter in the book. I won't say more, because as you will hear, it speaks for itself. In the pages of this book you will find many unusual things, including, but not limited to, an angry peacock in a cage, an arm that becomes transparent, an army of children made from mud, a cloud of bats made from diamonds, some beautiful but vain assassins, various blasphemous gods, a blue glint moving like a will-o'-the-wisp, several books of spells, piles of books used for firewood, a box that makes whatever is put within it appear somewhere else instead, a boy so bright that distant observers take him for the sun, a boy spun on a loom, The burglary of a palace. The burglary of a townhouse. Many carcasses of butchered animals left to rot. A child who is all limbs and nothing else. A child who is made into a ghost. A child who is two children made into one. A child with the face of a dog. A child blind in one eye whose sight is partially returned. A number of children beaten. Children that are made into nothing but a spine and a head. Children that come unbidden from nowhere. Children who drink only wine. A chimney with a devil's head on the top. Cities with odd names. Some clay figures animated by blood sacrifice. Combustible feathers. A corpse that becomes two corpses. A corridor suitable only for a child. A country bounded by white cliffs to its south. A creature that is transformed from itself into a rat. Creatures that are born directly from the muck. Creatures that live only for a moment and then fall to pieces. A crew of sailors, or with Irish names. A dance that is supposed to make a disease lesson. 
a demon interred alive at the centre of the earth. A dog that can commune mystically, but who cannot speak. A dog that can speak, but who cannot commune mystically. Electricity of a sort that can perform magic feats. An endlessly extensible ladder. Engines with a mysterious purpose. An entirely black ship. Some enormous lizards. Boxes of entomological specimens. The extortion with menaces of a pharmacist. A fallen patriarch. A family of elephants, unfamiliarly labelled. A fanged king made from shadows and gold. Hordes of feathered monsters made of fire. A festering wound. A fireproof glove. Swarms of flies that are born out of muck. Flocking firebirds swooping over the sea. Fluences. Some friendly fish. A gentleman's club in a sewer. Any number of ghosts. A giant fish around which a ship has been constructed. A girl with feathers for hair. A glass sphere big enough to comfortably house a captive. God's dead body. God's eye removed from its socket. A golden pyramid. A handkerchief the size of a tablecloth. A harem of female dogs. Hexes. A house called the Spire. A huge empty chamber at the heart of a city. Inanimate objects that are transformed into living versions of themselves. Incantations that act to perform magic. Two inheritances of great significance. An insect with the face of a monkey. A species of insect that makes the sun its home. An instrument that makes a person speak, regardless of their unwillingness to do so. Invisible wires that can kill by slicing. Magical jewellery worn inside the chambers of a boy's heart. A knife held to a man's eye. Latin mottos. Litter bearers in the Roman style. An exhibit of little spiked pigs. A locket with a boy in it. A locket with a man's finger in it. Delicious lollipops that come from nowhere. Machines that manufacture gold. Various magical knives. A magical axe. A magical bow. A magical corsage in the colours of the flag of France. A man who can move so quickly that people can't see him do it. A man who loves horses but not children. A man who smells of rancid butter. A man with a very large nose. A man who is assumed to be a noncer. A marble run. A married pair of mechanical mice. A masquerade ball. Men who can smell the difference between a man and a woman at a distance. Men whose jobs are also their names. Men with gills but no eyes. Men with the heads of cows. A mirror that reflects magical spells. 
A mirror that shows one's friends and accomplices over a distance. A mosaic that comes to life. The murder of a colleague. The murder of an enemy. The murder of surpassingly rare animals. Pouches of narcotic tobacco. Unnamed neurasthenic aristocrats. Some ornate doors. An otherworldly demon hell-bent on destruction. Poisoned bullets. Very many portraits of the famous dead. The possession of a person's body by the soul of another person, twice. Possible flap lappers. Possible rod rubbers. A post-cognitive toy theatre. Some powder that renders the thing invisible. A princess in disguise. Much profligate destruction and violence against property. Ram's head amulets with magical properties. A rat's nest in the pelvis of a corpse. Revolutionary justice. A road forged from glass. The robbery of a haberdasher. Many sacrificed children. A single sacrificed old man. Volumes of sand turned into glass. A scroll with a contract written on it. Sea fret. Sea that boils away so that the seabed is revealed. A secret door. A shaven-headed girl. Sigils, icons and glyphs having historical and magical significance. Silverfish made from electricity. Snakes with the heads of men. Spells performed with collected tears. Spells with names. A statue of a goat-headed god. Statues that are half of a column and half of a woman with the head of a goat. A striped cat of impressive size. A suit of armour that could fit a child. A sword hidden within a cane. A talking book that can also write and draw by itself. The teleportation of an object. A telescope. A tented city. Theft from a warehouse. Toys of enormous sophistication. A tube that projects a killing light. A tube with an eye on the end. Tubes made of glass. Unbreakable chains. A union of laundresses. Unusual costumes and uniforms of various periods and professions. Vats in which boys are changed from one thing into another. Vats made of glass. Violence against a haberdasher. Violence against a pharmacist. Violence against the clientele of a brothel. A wall of impressive size and strength. A war between magicians. Weapons with names. A white stag who is also a sort of god. A witch woman. A wolf pack that is also a sort of god. A woman with spines for hair. Worms that live in the lungs. Worms that live outside of the lungs and which are of unusual size. A zoo filled with screaming exhibits. All right. 
that's module. It is something else. You'll be able to hear chapter one in the next podcast. But for now, let's go back to 79 AD. A couple of podcasts back, I started talking about Pliny in the shadow of Vesuvius. And it was only after I'd put it out there that I realised not everyone will know the story, although I'm guessing most will know the basics. Which is to say that in 79 AD, Mount Vesuvius blew its lid. And it sounds absolutely terrifying. A writer, Pliny, was 17 at the time of the eruption. And years later, the historian Tacitus asked him to share his recollections. Pliny sent him two remarkable letters, which I'll read in just a minute. But uh, first, a quick bit of background. First on me, then on Pliny. I went to a grammar school in the north of England and was lucky enough to be taught Latin there. And so I encountered Pliny quite early. Uh, his Latin is generally clear, comprehensible, and so are the things he talks about, so they give it to school kids. But there is a slight catch in that although Pliny gives us fascinating insights into the ancient world, uh, he was also a bit of a windbag. For a while he was a provincial governor in Bithynia and Pontus, now modern Turkey, and he wrote these tremendously long letters to the Emperor Trajan, asking questions about really trivial minutiae of provincial life, and asking his boss to make decisions about them. Um, you know, it sounds ridiculous 2,000 years later, especially when you factor in that it would take, say, three months for the letter to get from uh, Turkey to Rome, and um, all that time, presumably the people in the province were waiting on this decision. And we've also got copies of Trajan's replies, which Pliny proudly kept, and they generally tend to be about one line long and just say to him, get the hell on with things. Anyway, that's Pliny, and uh, you know, I may be having a slight dig at him, but we should still rejoice that we have his letters. They can be funny, tender, surprising, and his mind is curious and nimble. He also has wonderful powers of description, as we're about to discover together. I'm going to read from the William Melmoth translation from the turn of the 20th century, uh, which came out in a Harvard edition, and you can find it for free on the Gutenberg website. It's slightly stuffy, but even an old-fashioned Latinist's best efforts can't detract from the power and the wonder of what Pliny said. So here we go. This is letter 65 to Tacitus. Your request that I would send you an account of my uncle's death in order to transmit a more exact relation of it to posterity deserves my acknowledgments. For, if this accident shall be celebrated by your pen, the glory of it, I am well assured, will be rendered forever illustrious. And notwithstanding, he perished by a misfortune, which, as it involved at the same time, a most beautiful country in ruins, and destroyed so many popular cities, seems to promise him an everlasting remembrance. He has himself composed many and lasting works, yet I'm persuaded, when you mention him in your immortal writings, that will greatly contribute to making his name immortal. So Pliny the Elder, uh, Pliny's uncle, it's worth mentioning here, was a military man with command of a fleet of ships, but he was also the ancient world's most distinguished natural historian. He'd written 
in fact, uh, the story is that he dictated this amazing book whilst in the bath, um, a 37 volume work based on his own observations and the writings of thousands of other ancient authors. It covers zoology, astrology, botany, geology, and it's fascinating not only as a natural history, but as a record of what people thought at the time about plants, animals, and all these other subjects. Um, so let me give you a, a quick taster. Here is his chapter on the origin of winds. In like manner, I would not deny that winds, or rather sudden gusts, are produced by the arid and dry vapours of the earth, that air may also be exhaled from water, which can neither be condensed into a mist nor compressed into a cloud, that it may also, driven forward by the impulse of the sun, since by the term wind we mean nothing more than a current of air, by whatever means it may be produced. For we observe winds to proceed from rivers and bays, and from the sea, even when it is tranquil, while others, which are named Altani, rise up from the earth. When they come back from the sea, they are named Tropai, but if they go straight on, Apogai. The windings and the numerous peaks of mountains, their ridges, bent into angles or broken into defiles with the hollow valleys, by their irregular forms cleaving the air, which rebounds from them, which is also the cause of why voices are, in many cases, repeated several times in succession, uh, echoes of course, uh, gives rise to wind. There are certain caves, such as that on the coast of Dalmatia, with a vast perpendicular chasm, into which, if a light weight only be let down, and although the day be calm, a squall issues from it like a whirlwind, the name of the place is Centre. And also, in the province of Kyrenaica, there is a certain rock, said to be sacred to the south wind, which it is profane for a human hand to touch, as the south wind immediately rolls forward clouds of sand. There are also, in many houses, artificial cavities formed in the walls, which produce currents of air, none of which are without their appropriate cause. Okay, that's enough about the wind. Uh, we can regret that Pliny the Elder didn't make the joke that a chapter on the origin of winds demands, but we can all enjoy the poetry and that all-important sense of wonder. You should also know that Pliny the Elder finished his natural history in 77 AD, two years before Vesuvius blew, for which spoiler alert, we should also be grateful. Okay, Pliny the Younger goes on. Happy I esteem those to be to whom by provision of the gods has been granted the ability either to do such actions as are worthy of being related or to relate them in a manner worthy of being read. But peculiarly happy are they who are blessed with both these uncommon talents, in the number of which my uncle as his own writings and your history will evidently prove, may justly be ranked. He was at that time with the fleet under his command at Mycenaeum. On the 24th of August, about one in the afternoon, my mother brought his attention to a cloud, which appeared of a very unusual size and shape. He had just taken a turn in the sun, and after bathing himself in cold water and making a light lunch, gone back to his books. He immediately arose and went out, Upon a rising ground from whence he might get a better sight of this very uncommon appearance. A cloud, from which mountain was uncertain at this distance, but it was found afterwards to come from Mount Vesuvius, was ascending, 
The appearance of this cloud, I cannot give you a more accurate description of them by likening it to that of an umbrella pine tree, for it shot to a great height in the form of a very tall trunk, which spread itself out at the top into a sort of branches, occasioned, I imagine, either by a sudden gust of air that impelled it, the force of which decreased as it advanced upwards, or the cloud itself, being pressed back again by its own weight, expanded in the manner I have mentioned. The cloud appeared sometimes bright and sometimes dark and spotted, according as it was either more or less impregnated with earth and cinders. This phenomenon seemed to a man of such learning and research as my uncle extraordinary, and worth further looking into. He ordered a light vessel to be got ready, and gave me leave, if I like, to accompany him. So, just for a bit of context, Mycenaeum's on the other side of the Bay of Naples. Pliny the Elder spots the volcano exploding and thinks, well, I'd better go towards that. Pliny the Younger is slightly less reckless as he goes on. I said I'd rather go on with my work, and it so happened he had himself given me something to write out. As he was coming out of the house, he received a note from Rectina, the wife of Bassus, who was in the utmost alarm at the imminent danger which threatened her, for her villa, lying at the foot of Mount Vesuvius, offered no way of escape but by sea. She earnestly entreated my uncle, therefore, to come to her assistance. He accordingly changed his first intention, and what he had begun from a philosophical, he now carried out in a heroic and generous spirit. He ordered the galleys to be put to sea, and went himself on board with an intention of assisting not only Rectina, but the several other towns which lay thickly strewn along that beautiful coast. Hastening then to the place from whence others fled with the utmost terror, he steered his course direct to the point of danger, and with so much calmness and presence of mind as to be able to make and dictate his observations upon the motion and all the phenomena of that dreadful scene. He was now so close to the mountain that the cinders, which grew thicker and hotter the nearer he approached, fell into the ships, together with pumice stones and black pieces of burning rock. They were in danger too, not only of being ground by the sudden retreat of the sea, but also from the vast fragments which rolled down from the mountain and obstructed all the shore. Here he stopped to consider whether he should turn back again, to which the pilot advising him said, Fortune favours the brave. Steer to where Pomponianus is. Pomponianus was then at Stabiae, separated by a bay, which the sea, after several insensible windings, formed with the shore. He had already sent his baggage on board, for though he was not at that time in actual danger, yet being within sight of it, and indeed extremely near, if it should in the least increase, he was determined to put to sea as soon as the wind, which was blowing dead in shore, should go down. It was favourable, however, for carrying my uncle to Pomponianus, whom he found in the greatest consternation. He embraced him tenderly, encouraging and urging him to keep up his spirits, and, the more effectually to soothe his fears, by seeming unconcerned himself, ordered a bath to be got ready, and then, after having bathed, sat down to supper with great cheerfulness, or at least, what is just as heroic, with every appearance of it. Meanwhile, broad flames shone out in several places from Mount Vesuvius, which the darkness of the night contributed to render still brighter and clearer. But my uncle, 
in order to soothe the apprehensions of his friend, assured him it was only the burning of the villages, which the country people had abandoned to the flames. After this he retired to rest, and it is most certain he was so little disquieted as to fall into a sound sleep, for his breathing, which on account of his corpulence was rather heavy and sonorous, was heard by the attendants outside. The court which led to his apartment, being now almost filled with stones and ashes, if he had continued there any time longer, it would have been impossible for him to have made his way out. So he was woken, and got up and went to Pompanianus and the rest of his company, who were feeling too anxious to think of going to bed. They consulted together whether it would be most prudent to trust to the houses, which now rocked from side to side with frequent and violent concussions, as though shaken from their very foundations, or to fly to the open fields, where the calcined stones and cinders, though light indeed, yet fell in large showers, and threatened destruction. In this choice of dangers, they resolved for the fields, a resolution which, while the rest of the company were hurried into by their fears, my uncle embraced upon cool and deliberate consideration. They went out then, having pillows tied upon their heads with napkins, and this was their whole defence against the storm of stones that fell around them. It was now day everywhere else, but there a deeper darkness prevailed than in the thickest night, which, however, was in some degree alleviated by torches and other lights of various kinds. They thought proper to go further down upon the shore to see if they might safely put out to sea, but found the waves still running extremely high and boisterous. There, my uncle, laying himself down upon a sailcloth which was spread for him, called twice for some cold water which he drank. Immediately the frames, preceded by a strong whiff of sulphur, dispersed the rest of the party and obliged him to rise. He raised himself up with the assistance of two of his servants and instantly fell down, dead, suffocated, as I conjecture, by some gross and noxious vapour, having always had a weak throat, which was often inflamed. As soon as it was light again, which was not till the third day after this melancholy accident, his body was found entire, and without any marks of violence upon it, in the dress in which he had fallen, and looking more like a man asleep than dead. During all this time, my mother and I, who were still at Mycenaeum, but this has no connection with your history, and you did not desire any particulars beside those of my uncle's death, so I will end here, only adding that I have faithfully related to you what I was either an eyewitness of myself or received immediately after the accident happened, and before there was time to vary the truth. You will pick out of this narrative whatever is most important, for a letter is one thing, a history another. It is one thing writing to a friend, another thing writing to the public. Farewell. Now that letter was so good that Tacitus asked for more, so we get letter 66 to Tacitus. The letter which in compliance with your request I wrote to you concerning the death of my uncle has raised, it seems, your curiosity to know what terrors and dangers attended me while I continued at Mycenaeum, for there I think my account broke off. Though my shocked soul recoils, my tongue shall tell. My uncle having left us, I spent such time as was left on my studies, till it was time for my bath, after which I went to supper, and then fell into a short and uneasy sleep. We had been noticing for many days before a trembling of the earth, which did not alarm us much, as this is quite an ordinary occurrence in Campania, but it was so particularly violent that night 
that it not only shook but actually overturned, as it would seem, everything about us. My mother rushed into my chamber, where she found me rising in order to awaken her. We sat down in the open court of the house, which occupied a small space between the buildings and the sea. As I was at that time but seventeen years of age, I know not whether I should call my behaviour in this dangerous juncture courage or folly. But I took up Livy and amused myself with turning over that author and even making extracts from him, as if I had been perfectly at my leisure. Just then, a friend of my uncle's, who had lately come to him from Spain, joined us, and observing me sitting by my mother with a book in my hand, reproved her for her calmness, and me, at the same time, for my careless security. Nevertheless, I went on with my author. Though it was now morning, the light was still exceedingly faint and doubtful. The buildings all around us tottered, and though we stood upon open ground, yet as the place was narrow and confined, there was no remaining without imminent danger. We therefore resolved to quit the town. A panic-stricken crowd followed us, and, as to a mind distracted with terror, every suggestion seems more prudent than its own, pressed on us in dense array to drive us forward as we came out. Being at a convenient distance from the houses, we stood still in the midst of a most dangerous and dreadful scene. The chariots which we had ordered to be drawn out were so agitated backwards and forwards, though upon the most level ground, that we could not keep them steady, even by supporting them with large stones. The sea seemed to roll back upon itself, and to be driven from its banks by the convulsive motion of the earth. It is certain at least the shore was considerably enlarged, and several sea animals were left upon it. On the other side, a black and dreadful cloud, broken with rapid zigzag flashes, revealed behind it variously shaped masses of flame. These last were like sheet lightning, but much larger. Upon this, our Spanish friend, whom I mentioned above, addressing himself to my mother and me with greater energy and urgency, If your brother, he said, if your uncle be safe, he certainly wishes you may be so too. But if he perished, it was his desire, no doubt, that you might both survive him. Why, therefore, do you delay your escape a moment? We could never think of our own safety, we said, while we were uncertain of his. Upon this, our friend left us, and withdrew from the danger with the utmost speed. Soon afterwards, the cloud began to descend and cover the sea. It had already surrounded and concealed the island of Capri in the promontory of Mycenaeum. My mother now besought, urged, even commanded me to make my escape. At any rate, which, as I was young, I might easily do. As for herself, she said, her age and corpulency rendered all attempts of that sort impossible. However, she would willingly meet death if she could have the satisfaction of seeing that she was not the occasion of mine. But I absolutely refused to leave her, and taking her by the hand, compelled her to go with me. She complied with great reluctance, and not without many reproaches to herself for retarding my flight. The ashes now began to fall upon us, though in no great quantity. I looked back. A dense, dark mist seemed to be following us, spreading itself over the country like a cloud. Let us turn out to the high road, I said, while we can still see. I'm frightened that if we fall into the road, we shall be pressed to death in the dark by the crowds that are following us. We had scarcely sat down when night came upon us, not such as we have when the sky is cloudy, or when there is no moon, but that of a room when it is shut up and all the lights put out. You might hear the shrieks of women, the screams of children and the shouts of men, some calling for their children, others for their parents, others for their husbands, 
and seeking to recognise each other by the voices that replied, one lamenting his own fate, another that of his family, some wishing to die from the very fear of dying, some lifting their hands to the gods, but the greater part convinced that there were now no gods at all, and that the final endless night of which we have heard had come upon the world. Among these, there were some who augmented the real terrors, by others imaginary or willfully invented. I remember someone who declared that one part of Mycenaeum had fallen, that another was on fire. It was false, but they found people to believe them. It now grew rather lighter, which we imagined to be rather the forerunner of an approaching burst of flames, as in truth it was. Then the return of day. However, the fire fell at a distance from us. Then again we were immersed in thick darkness, and a heavy shower of ashes rained upon us, which we were obliged every now and then to stand up to shake off, otherwise we should have been crushed and buried in the heap. I might boast that, during all this scene of horror, not a sigh or expression of fear escaped me, had not my support been grounded in that miserable, though mighty consolation, that all mankind were involved in the same calamity, and that I was perishing with the world itself. At last, this dreadful darkness was dissipated by degrees. Like a cloud or smoke, the real day returned, and even the sun shone out, though with a lurid light, like when eclipse is coming on. Every object that presented itself to our eyes, which were extremely weakened, seemed changed, being covered deep with ashes as if with snow. We returned to Mycenaeum, where we refreshed ourselves as well as we could, and passed an anxious night between hope and fear, though, indeed, with a much larger share of the latter, for the earthquake still continued, while many frenzied persons ran up and down, heightening their own and their friends' calamities by terrible predictions. However, my mother and I, notwithstanding the danger we had passed, and that which still threatened us, had no thought of leaving the place, till we could receive some news of my uncle. And now, you will read this narrative without any view of inserting it in your history, of which it is not the least worthy, and indeed, you must put it down to your own request if it should appear not worth even the trouble of a letter. Farewell. And that is the end of Pliny's letter. And if it sounds incredible, well it was. The volcanic blast is supposed to have given off 100,000 times the energy of the bombs dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Gas and ash were blasted into the stratosphere, while pyroclastic flows consumed large parts of the plain below. It must have been all the more shocking to people there because Pompeii at the time would have felt like one of the most secure places on earth. It was one of the cleanest, most efficient, wealthiest, healthiest towns in human history. Not only to that point, but for more than 1500 years after it was consumed by the ash. I was lucky enough to go there last Easter. It feels safe, solid, nice. Houses are full of beautiful art. There are cosy looking fast food outlets. There's a beautiful theater. And if you were one of the lucky ones, which is to say a male Roman citizen with money, of course, there are terrible inequalities in the ancient world. But if you were one of those people, you must have felt like life was only throwing good things at you until you were consumed by fire and darkness. Many of the remains of the bodies that have since been found show how utterly unprepared people were for what happened. It's easy now to imagine how they just couldn't have believed that their comfortable, stable lives could be so disrupted. There are people frozen by the ash flows, 
grasping onto possessions, who grabbed their money before they fled. Who knows what they thought they were going to do with it? One of the stories that most freezes my blood is of the people who are trying to flee on boats from the, the smaller nearby town of Herculaneum. They thronged onto the beaches in smoke and under that volcanic night, molten, fiery, heavy crap raining down on them. And plenty of them did get to the shore, but when they got there, disaster upon disaster, as Pliny tells us, the sea retreated miles away from them. You know, you fight your way out of the town, it's hot, you're choking, you're terrified, you can barely see, you think you've made it, and then the fucking sea disappears. Joe Nacolella wrote recently in the New Yorker about the discoveries that have been made after this calamity and says, Other researchers have identified some glassy black material found in Herculaneum as the brain matter of one of the victims, vitrified by the eruption's pyroclastic flow, burning clouds of gas and ash. As this avalanche poured down on the coast at a speed of at least 60 miles an hour, the temperature on the ground rose to about 750 degrees Fahrenheit. Lead melts at 621 degrees Fahrenheit. So, there you go. I'm not entirely sure why this story seems so fascinating to me right now. Partly it's because it always has. As I say, I read Pliny's letters at school, and the image of his uncle rushing into danger has haunted me ever since. It's a horrible story, but it's also hopeful in a way. Pliny the Elder didn't come back, but the people who told the story did. And let's at least assume they rescued some people when they did so. Heroes have always walked among us. And Pompeii may have gone, but it came back again. A tremendous gift to posterity. Among the things they found there was a house full of papyri that have been carbonised and are slowly releasing their secret thanks to the lead tracings in the ancient ink. I suppose I should also admit that when that villa was first found, loads of those priceless artefacts were placed in a fire because it looked like handy fuel. But I guess you win some and lose some. The other thing is that we can still relate to those people in Pompeii. Pliny too, even if you thought that translation I read was a bit pompous. And even if he was himself a bit of a bore, he feels wonderfully human in the holy terror he feels with his mother and also in his trying to claim that he didn't cry out in fear. And also his fascination with what he was seeing is so relatable. And it's that curiosity that has made his voice resonate down the centuries. Remember that now. We're experiencing remarkable things. Maybe people are going to want to hear our stories. Maybe some of us can also do something good for posterity. Thank you for listening. Uh, okay.